We're going to begin reading in verse 8 and read through verse 21. And beloved, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, and they captured it, and they struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterwards, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites, who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowlands. And Judah went against the Canaanites, who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went to the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him a Aksah, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksah, his daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah and from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in Negev near Arad. And they went and they settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who, inhab- who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Ramah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites had lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem up until this day. Would you pray with me once again? Heavenly Father, we come before you with your word. We pray that your word would guide us and it would instruct us, that it would encourage us, but it would also challenge us that we might live a life that honors you by applying that word to our lives, to the way we look at the world. I pray your mercies upon everything that is said and everything that is done and all that we meditate upon this night. And I pray in doing so, Uh, that our hearts would be turned towards you. I pray that you would be glorified either through me or in spite of me. And these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Initially, when I was laying out how I would approach some of these vignettes in the book of Judges, I really didn't anticipate spending a lot of time in this section. There's a lot of geopolitical movement. This army's going here, this army's going there, and a lot of geography that it contains. And while that stuff is interesting and good, 
some of that is better suited perhaps for a classroom than for a sermon. And so I will leave the geopolitical sides to those who have interest in military history and, and grand um, uh, tactics. And I will leave the, the geographic side to those who are interested in geography and wanna go to the maps in the back of their Bibles or their um, atlas and kind of locate all of these little cities and towns and regions and things along those lines and kind of map out where these armies went. But as I was reflecting upon this section, it struck me that there are some very important themes that this section contains. Some themes that help guide our understanding of the book of Judges as we kind of work through the book of Judges, guide our understanding of the character of God, but not even just in the immediate context. They also cause us to look forward. They cause us to look forward to Christ. And more importantly, they cause us to look forward to Christ's second coming. And for that, I think it's important that we understand them. I think it's also important that we understand them because these are oftentimes some misunderstood themes. And being misunderstood, many who are antagonistic to Christianity oftentimes use our misunderstanding of that, or I should simply say sometimes Christians misunderstanding or, 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 or lack of knowledge of the Bible um, to distort and to, to twist the character or how they present the character of God. And I think we need to, for that reason as well, to make sure that we have an understanding of what's taking place so that we don't fall prey to that trap and we don't let those that we care about fall prey to that trap as well. So with that by way of introduction, there are three themes that I really wanna focus on this evening. The first is that of the marriage of Aksah, and to explore that, the, the, the daughter of Caleb, explore that for a little bit. The second is the notion of Haram, and the idea of devoting something to destruction. And the third is the effect of Benjamin not doing to the Jebusites what the Benjaminites should have done to the Jebusites. In other words, exterminating them and leaving them to live alongside of the Benjaminites in Israel. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, it sounds like Gross Close is doing a three-point sermon, and I'm not. It's really just a one-point sermon because really my focus in all of these, these things is to talk about how we look at things from a heavenly perspective and not from an earthly perspective and using these three things as illustrations of the same issue. Okay, so it's one point with three subpoints, three illustrations of that one point about how we look at things or we are to look at things from the perspective of the way God looks at things. In some senses, I think, Pastor, you would agree with me that just about every sermon is designed to help us do that. But this is designed to do, help us do that as well. And so our text begins where uh, we left off last time. Judah and Simeon had been working together to overthrow the Canaanites. And we find verses 8 through 12, they continue to do that. And they, they move the campaign continuing from Jerusalem down to Hebron. 
Now you will note that Jerusalem in verse eight was, was described as putting, being put to the edge of the sword and set fire to. I'm not gonna dwell on that here, but hold on to that idea. It's important and we'll come back to it. We should also say that there is a significance to Hebron. We go, okay, that's just, and oftentimes that's just a location place for us in our mind, but that happens to be the location where Sarah is buried. And you can find that in Genesis 23, verses 2 and 19. And so that makes Hebron a very significant place to the people of Israel because that's where Sarah lies. We also hear that there are three men who were defeated. Shishai, Akaman, and Talmai. And we go, wow, these are great names. Good baby names. If you're looking to suggest a baby name to somebody, wonderful opportunities, ideas for baby names. Uh, we are told that all three in Numbers uh, 13, verse 22, are sons of Anak. And Anak kind of shows up a little bit later in this chapter. Uh, um, and so uh, when the Israelites went in and they saw the land, they saw the sons of Anak, and they, they feared the sons of Anak as Nephilim. Um, as giants of some sort, um, the term Nephilim literally in Hebrew means those who fall upon, which implies that these were brigands, marauders, warlords perhaps, and things along those lines. And you can find a lot of this duplicated and paralleled in the book of Joshua, uh, because again, there's an overlap here as, as Judges is being introduced. And so we arrive at the first of our points of interest. To entice the people to attack the city of Kiriath Sefer, which interestingly enough means the city of the book or the village of the book, which is renamed to Debir, which means words. So there's, there's, there's some connotations there. So to encourage them to attack this city, the victor was to be given the daughter of Caleb. Uh, Caleb to marry whoever, whoever wins. And the victor, of course, as we read, was a man by the name of Othniel, who is Caleb's nephew. And this is a good Sunday school kind of because there's a grammatical question in terms of how that gets worked out. Um, but most likely, according to the genealogies, he's, he's Caleb's nephew, and that kind of fits the, the, the chrono chronology and the timeline better too. Um, in addition, Othniel, as you read ahead, becomes the first of the named judges, kind of the paradigm by which all of the judges are measured. Uh, so he's a significant figure and becomes a significant figure. And so, yes, Othniel and his new wife, Aksa, if you do the genealogies, are cousins. But Mosaic law does not forbid cousins from marrying. And so we, have, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't find any kind of a, a difficulty as we kind of read that here, even though sometimes in our American culture, we would go, hmm, maybe question mark. Okay, now you might be tempted to say, well, that doesn't sound very fair for Aksa. I mean, think about it this way. Dad's basically using her as a trophy. Hey, you attack and win this city, you get my daughter. She's a trophy wife in a sense of the term. Uh, how's that fair to her? But nevertheless, it's an arranged marriage. And, and so what do we do with that 
how do we handle that in, in, in our culture as well today? And in, in understanding that, that doesn't sound right in our ears to have a marriage arranged based on military valor more than anything else. And so let's ask the question, is there biblical precedent for arranged marriages? And the answer has to be yes. There is lots of biblical precedent for arranged marriages. The next question we would ask is, what other precedent in there? And I'm gonna to have to tell you that there's also historical precedent for arranged marriages. For most of the history of most of the world, marriages have been arranged by mom and dad, sometimes before you were born or when you were just itsy bitsy as a little one. We, that doesn't sit real well with most of us today. I was kind of hoping that we'd have some of our teenagers here because they make them a little bit nervous in terms of what I'm about to suggest. But um, the reality is, in our culture today, that's something that doesn't typically sit very well. But let's follow the logic of that. When you're young and you fall in love, well, everything is butterflies and roses. You tend not to be able to see the flaws in the person that you, you're all fluttery feeling about. Yes, I know, Dad. He's got a, a long rap sheet for, for car theft and bank robbery, and, and he's, his body is covered with tattoos, but he's really a great guy. And yeah, Mom, I know, she, she swears like a sailor, but, but you know, deep down, she's really rather sweet once you get to know her and get past all that vulgarity. And parents have a way of seeing through those things that when we're young and in love, we can't see through. And again, for most of the history of most of the world, parents have acted upon that and said, well, that's nice that you feel that way, darling. That's nice that you feel that way, son but we're wiser than you are, and we're going to make some other decisions on your behalf. I sometimes, as I was thinking about, wonder at what my parents thought about some of the dates that I brought home. The biker chicks with the multi-processed hair and things along those, and the dread that I might actually end up marrying one of those um, that I brought home. Let me say this too. This young lady was not one of the biker chicks. <laughs> and I am grateful that while I had the opportunity to choose my spouse, that I chose a woman that my parents would have chosen for me had they been the ones doing the choosing. And so I'm grateful for that. And so let me simply say this, and again, this is something we need to echo in the lives of our kids and, and grandkids and things like that. Girls, talk to your fathers. Guys, if you're dating and serious about a young lady, talk to her father and seek permission. Obviously, we're assuming Christian godly parents. But seek permission because they have wisdom that when we're young and everything is all butterflies, we just don't have. And so make sure that we do that. But here's the thing, too that I want you to understand. There's a different mindset when it comes to an arranged marriage. In an arranged marriage, 
you fall in love because you are married. You don't get married because you have fallen in love. Why is that significant to us today? That a principle applies to those of us who are married. Because at times, the trials of life cause us to, however you want to word it, fall out of love with one another for whatever reason that might be. And the answer, our, the culture's answer is divorce. Move on. Find somebody that you're going to fall in love with. But the biblical answer is no. Stay married. Do what all of those generations before you have done. You may have fallen out of love, but choose to fall in love because you are married. Over the years of being a minister, I've had the, the opportunity to counsel more than a few uh, couples that were on the rocks. And I'm sure, Pastor, you have done much the same. And that's always been my counsel. It's just because you don't like each other at the moment doesn't mean that you're not married anymore. What it means is you've got work to do. Because our love is not really a feeling. Love is a commitment. It's, it is, it is an a, a intention, a decision that we make. An attitude that we have towards our spouse to say that, you know what, even though I may not like you right now, I'm going to choose to love you because you are my spouse and you are the woman or the man, respectively, that God has given to me as a divine gift to walk alongside of me so long as we both shall live. That's something that Othniel and Aksa had to figure out how to do. We don't know how much or how well they knew one another prior to their marriage. Regardless, once they were married, they stayed married, and they chose to figure out how to be in love with one another. There's a second point that comes out of this marriage that I think is really important to, to drive home. Because many critics of Christianity say, well, you know, in the Old Testament, women were, were basically chattel. They basically didn't have any rights of their own. They were owned by their husband, and that is a bunch of baloney. The Old Testament, there are lots of instances where women have property of their own, where they have responsibilities of their own, and they have a certain degree of authority of their own in the household. She is given a piece of property that belongs to her, in addition to what her husband has as his, his inheritance in the land. She is given piece of property, just like the daughters of Zelophat, and you can find that in Numbers 27. Daughters of Zelophat said, hey, there's no boys. Can we get inheritance instead of our brothers? And the answer was yes. And here's your divisions in the land. And so they continued that line there uh, in the land. They're women of noble character that we oftentimes talk about around this time of the year because people like to talk about love, you know, and things along those lines. But that woman of noble character in Proverbs 31 Read the things that she is responsible for. It's pretty extensive in terms of how she manages things. So her husband has the privilege of being able to sit with the elders in the gates. So he has the time to serve in the church as an elder because he knows everything is going to be well taken care of in his own home. 
That is a wonderful gift that is given. We talked not that many uh, weeks ago about Jael and Deborah, who also had authority in God's economy. The point is that many atheists are aware of biblical ignorance amongst Christians, and so they twist things and distort things and challenge, sometimes in ways that we're not ready to respond to. So again, protect yourself from falsehoods like that. And so Aksah is given territory um, in addition to that of her husband. Okay, and so now we move from that section back into the narrative here that we've, we've just read through. And so uh, we see the, uh, the tribe of Judah basically fulfilling their promise and joining Simeon uh, in aid in taking Simeon's inheritance in the land. They're tag-teaming together. Uh, they went up from the ruins of the city of Palms. We know that city better as Jericho. And in verse 17, we are told uh, that when they reached the city of Safath, they devoted it to destruction, renaming it Chormah, uh, which in English translates something to the extent of a big gaping chasm. Basically a hole in the ground uh, is all that is left. Devoting a city to destruction, like putting it to the sword, we saw that earlier in terms of, Je uh, of Jerusalem, uh, means that every living thing in that city was put to death. And all of the goods and the property of the people that are left over are burned and oftentimes its walls would be reduced to rubble. The Hebrew word for this uh, is haram, which basically, for a lack of a better way of describing it, is a kind of localized genocide. Everything that breathes and draw breath is to be killed, destroyed, and nothing is to be left over. Now the practice is condemned by many who are antagonistics, uh, antagonistic to the Christian faith, and oftentimes Christians, because we're a little bit uncomfortable around things like this that God has commanded, we oftentimes sidestep it. But if we're gonna deal honestly with the text, we need to deal honestly with what God has commanded in the text. And so the question we need to ask is haram right? The simple answer that, to that is yes, because God ordained it. God commanded it of his people, and so yes, it is right. So perhaps the better answer that we should be, or a question that we should be asking is perhaps why is it right? In addition, again, to God's command. And so I wanna put this idea in context. Remember, the people are at war. And when you're at war, things happen in a way that don't necessarily happen in a way of peace. Soldiers are acting kind of as a deputized force. They are engaging with the, the enemies in a different way than you or I would be engaging with our neighbors. These guys are not acting upon their own authority, but they're acting upon the authority of the government, the governing body that has sent them to war. That still applies today in many, many senses of the term. I should also say that sometimes shock and awe has the effect of saving life in the long run. Now that's kind of, again, a hard one sometimes to, to, to 
grapple with. But when you see a destruction like this, and you're one of the neighboring cities and you hear about it, there's a message that is clearly sent. And that message is to say, you better be prepared to either surrender or flee because when these guys arrive, there's gonna be nothing left and no second chances given to you. Perhaps the, the, modern, the modern, more modern context, the best parallel to this would be that of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Nuclear weapons, uh, their use was a tipping point that brought Japan to surrender. Without the use of those two bombs, uh, a lot of military historians thought that that war would have continued on and the bloodshed would have been astronomical. Yet the destruction that was caused by those two bombs included many women, children, animals. And if you've seen pictures of what was left of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there's very little very little of anything that drew breath that survived it, either immediately or in the near future because of the horrors of radiation poisoning and kind of things like that. Now we may debate, and that's for another time, the, the justification of using bombs like that and forms like that to, to attack our enemies. That's another lesson this conversation is better suited for a classroom. But let me say this again, many lives were spared. Both Japanese and Americans were spared by even conservative estimates by doing what they did. Now, does that kind of justify you know, pragmatics? Um, perhaps no, but I think maybe it helps us to illustrate and understand some of what is going on in a time of warfare Again, this is not me getting mad at my neighbor. You know, this is not, you know, a group of people over here getting mad at a group of people over there. You know, the town of Butler invading, you know, the, the Cranberry Township because they, they don't like that. Or, you know, uh, us invading Grove City or something along those lines. We're not talking those kinds of things. We're talking a time of warfare. So that's the first thing to remember in terms of its context. The second thing to remember is the Canaanites were evil and they were immoral. We find, excuse me, clear reference to that in Leviticus 18, verses 24 and 25. They were defiling the land with their immorality to the point where in Leviticus it's described as if the land was going to be vomiting them out. How was that vomiting done? Well, through Israel going in and acting as God's agents of judgment against an immoral and wicked people. That's Genesis 15, 16 as well. In other words, the justice part of it we need to keep before us. They were defiling the land and this is not a matter of just a power grab. This is God bringing his justice upon all Israel. Again, to borrow the language of Leviticus 18, the land was vomiting them out, and Israel was essentially the standard, uh, the means by which God did, did that. With that in mind, recognizing the sexual immorality of that area, it's oftentimes caused me to look at our own culture 
and wonder how much longer it will be before God ordains such that the land vomits us out, as it were, in a similar manner. And so Haram is meant as a picture of divine judgment. We've got that. We've got Noah's flood is another picture of divine judgment where everything, women, children, those who were pregnant at the time were destroyed. We have the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, everything in that valley was destroyed. Woman, child, animals. This is the same principle that is applied. It may make us a little bit uncomfortable. That make us a little bit uneasy, but this is indeed in God's eternal plan, God's way. And the reality is there will come such a time where our Lord comes again. And there will be final judgments where everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the eternal fires of hell with the devil and with his demons. Beloved, it is coming. We don't know when. We don't know whether it will be in our lifetimes or great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren's lifetimes. But it is coming. But what are the children? That's usually the next question. Aren't children cute, precious, wonderful, and innocent? And how is it that they deserve this? I mean, that's a fair question to ask. And I think we need to be honest with that question. Here, at least let me begin by saying I'm reminded by the words of the Apostle Paul who says that none is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside and together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. I don't care how cute and precious and beautiful those babies are, and they are. They're cute and precious and beautiful. But they're not sinless. And only sinlessness can stand in judgment before God. We are born in sin and we remain in sin. We are born under judgment and we remain under judgment with one unless. And that unless is unless we have a redeemer. Unless we are born again in faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only redeemer. And it's the work of Jesus in God's time that will be applied effectually to the life of all of his elect through the grace of saving faith. Every single one of the elect, but not of the reprobate. And those that God saves will repent and believe. Paul writes again in Romans, what if God, desiring to show his power and to make, to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That's Romans 9, verses 22 and 23. So Christian, in some senses of the term, what we see in the, the, the death of all of those who die under haram is meant as a reminder to us of what we have been saved from as believers in Jesus Christ. It's meant as a warning for those around us to repent and believe. We're still brought back to the question, but what of the children who never had the opportunity to repent and believe? With that question, we need to ask ourselves, 
Are they regenerate? Could they be regenerate? Well, at least one we know of in history was regenerated in the womb. It's John the Baptist. It could happen. I think the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 10, article 3, is very helpful in putting the pieces together for us. It reads this way, elect infants dying in the infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through, through the Spirit who works when and where and how he pleases. So also are the elect persons who are unable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Those people who never, never um, are able to understand things like that. We would, we would sometimes talk about a severe mental illness or something along those lines that falls into that category. God elects, and those whom he has elected, he saves, young or old, a child or adult. He ordinarily saves through the ministry of the word. But if they're elect, even if they die in childbirth, that is God's design and God's plan for that child. And we need not fear the death of the elect. And so could some of the infants who died in um, Cephalah um, been, been elect? Perhaps, we're not told, and we don't know. And we leave that to God. Could some of the infants who died in Hiroshima have been elect? Perhaps. But the secret things belong to the Lord our God, and the things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children forever, so that we may do all of the works of his law. Deuteronomy 29, 29. That's sobering, isn't it? Because it's in God's hands. We, we would love to be the kind of people that goes, yes, everybody goes to heaven. Oh, it's wonderful. But that's not what the Bible teaches. But while it's sobering, it's hopeful, I think. Because when we speak of unconditional grace, we really mean unconditional grace. When we pray for the salvation of God's people, we recognize that it's God doing all of the work. It's not our convincing that did it. I can't tell you how many times I've run into people who said, I have saved so many people. And I say, really? Really? You have saved? Well, you know what I mean. Well, maybe, but I think it was God who saved, and I think it was the Holy Spirit who may have used you in that process, but it's God who saved. God who's working out his divine plan in his people. Those he elected will come to faith in God's time frame. So pray for those people. Evangelize those people. Share your faith in every opportunity that God gives you to do so. But recognize that there are going to be people in your life that you're going to run into that will not and ever respond to all of the best arguments that you might have, all the best preaching that you might do, and all the, the most fervent praying that you might give. Because that belongs to God and His election. So those he elected will come to faith in God's time and those he reprobated will remain spiritually blind and deaf under the judgment that they rightly deserve for their sin. Again, that doesn't mean that we don't try. But it does mean that you, we, you and me, can't give 
new life to somebody who is spiritually dead. We just can't do it. That is a work of God through his spirit. And I want you to know too, and this is hard sometimes to wrap our heads around on this side of the veil. But as we read our scriptures, one day we will celebrate the final judgment of God upon the wicked, the reprobate. Even though some of them will have been people that were dear to us in this life. We need to be careful how we say that because it can kind of sound as if we're being callous. But read the book of Revelation. The saints celebrate because the saints recognize as Christ is being glorified. And we will come to a point at that time when we will love Jesus more intensely than we will love anything else except perhaps the intensity with which we will hate sin and evil. Let me make a final note about Haram. The Bible actually uses this term in two senses, which is kind of interesting how radically opposed those senses are in terms of the use of that word. In one sense, it speaks about things that are devoted to destruction. And those things that have been devoted to destruction are irredeemable. You can't undevote them to destruction. Similarly, it uses the same term to refer to those that have been devoted to God for his work and his pleasure alone. And those things too, as you go through the book of Leviticus, are unredeemable by us. We can't say, hey, I've given you this donkey and now I'm taking it back. It's irredeemable by us. It's there, it's given, and it belongs to God and belongs to God forever. Why is that curious? Well, I think it's curious because spiritually, there are only two categories. Spiritually now, those people who have been devoted to glory and those people who have been devoted to destruction, those people who have been uh, elected to eternal life and those people who have been reprobated to eternal death. Those people who are elect will never become the reprobates. And those people who are reprobated will never become the elect, though sometimes the elect behave like reprobates before they come to faith. And sadly, sometimes the elect fall into sin and behave like reprobates even after they've come to faith. And for that, they need to repent. But if you get that right, you then understand why there is no losing your salvation. And then you also understand why there is no second chance theology. Those who are reprobate could, ah, now I finally know the truth. I'm going to ask Jesus to save me in some kind of a spiritual in-between place. That doesn't happen. There's nothing biblical about that. That's a Gnostic notion that somehow crept into, quote unquote, Christianese thoughts. So the question really is, what are you placing your affections upon? Are you loving the things that God loves? Because that's a mark, as Pastor spoke about earlier, of, of being the elect. Are you loving the things that the world loves? Because that's a mark of the reprobate. Though we do not know the heart, God sees the heart. We can simply see the fruit of the tree that is lived out. And so finally, our passage comes to close really on a, on a sad note. Judah could not conquer the tribes of the plains 
because they had iron chariots. When we talk about JL, we talk about iron chariots briefly. Okay, there's a culture um, uh, or an age, whatever, uh, an era that is shifting from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age at this point in time when the book of Judges is taking place. And one of the beauties about the historicity of this book is to demonstrate, yeah, I mean, as we, as we know, when cultures were shifting from the use of bronze to the use of iron, Judges is kind of right about there right on the cusp of that change. And so Israel is coming in with kind of a much more of a Bronze Age approach. And some of the Canaanites have adopted iron weapons and that makes them very dangerous. I mean, the iron chariot at the time in history was the equivalent of a tank. I mean, it changed everything in terms of how battle uh, was being done. And so they were unable to take the planes because of the weaponry of those who happened to, to dwell there. But we're also told that Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. And you might be wanting, wanting to scratch your head here and go, wait a minute. Didn't you say just a few minutes ago that Jerusalem had been destroyed in verse 8 and, and put to the sword and burned? So how are there Jebusites still in Jerusalem? Because they would have all been, been killed. Scholars have all kinds of answers to this question. Um, some have suggested that because this is a larger period of time, this was a, a city that was destroyed and then repopulated some and had to be retaken. Uh, some have suggested that this is two different cities. You know, and I think that might be just about as easy an explanation as, as you're going to find. When we first moved to Mississippi for seminary, the, the PCA church that we were attending, it wasn't long before we, in just conversations with people, we found out a lot of people were talking about how they graduated from Oxford. And for a while, I was like really impressed until I realized they were talking about Oxford, Mississippi, uh, where Ole Miss happens to be. And then, for whatever reason, I wasn't quite as impressed anymore. I mean, there are places that share the same name, and so we shouldn't get too excited when we see some of that. And if that is your answer, that's, that's fine. Um, uh, Jerusalem was originally Jebus, where's why they're called the Jebusites, who, who lived in that area. But nevertheless, Benjamin was not able to throw them out, uh, was not able to, to cast them all out uh, from, from the city. And so we are told that they lived together from that point on, at least to the point where the book of Judges was being written. The book of Judges lasted about 350 years. Actually, it's not until David comes along as king and the Jebusites finally are, are destroyed and cast out of Jerusalem. And we might be tempted to say, well, that's kind of nice. They don't have to kill everybody and put everybody to the sword. They can just live side by side as neighbors and, and slowly the Jewish people will evangelize the Jebusites that lived there. Yeah, that would be nice. But that's not what happened and that's not typically what does happen uh, when we, we kind of merge our communities together. Um, the Jebusites kind of held on to the city. Jebusites continued their idolatry in the city. And again, the Jebusites influenced the tribe of Benjamin. Because by the end of this book, we're going to see just how bad Benjamin really is. And Benjamin's a mess as a tribe. At least partly because of the influence here 350 years earlier. Again, it took David and his kingship to throw the Jebusites out. Point of application, when we mix 
paganism, when we mix secularism and those influences with Christianity, we end up with watered-down Christianity. We don't end up Christianizing the, the society, typically. There may be some exceptions, and I'm, I'm, I've, I've been around this gig long enough to know that somebody will walk out the door and go, but I can give you one example. Great. But for that one example, I'll give you 100 examples in history uh, where it just didn't work that way. Unfortunately, what happens is not only does Christianity get watered down, it sometimes gets watered down so much that it is no longer recognizable as what it once was. And I think that's a lot of our problem in America today. We have allowed Christianity to become so watered down by the culture, by pagan influences, by secular influences, by just personal I like influences. We're quick to do, I like this, so this is what we'll do. We don't really ask what God wants, typically, um, but we should. And as a result, anything and just about everything in America passes as Christian. And that's the mess that we are in. Some of it is well-intended, I will fully grant. But uh, Nadab and Abihu learned the hard way about good-intentioned bad acts when it comes to worship. It is meant as a sincere reminder that while we live in the world, we must not become of the world. Because when we become of the world, we become like the world, and our citizenship, folks, is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven, and thus we should live as members of that kingdom, and not so much as members of this kingdom. And so we find Israel compromising even in the earliest days of the conquest. And the story of the judges, as it lays out and continues on, is just an expansion on that. Over and over and over again, compromise. It's sobering and it's sad. But it's a reminder that we can't do it ourselves. We need Jesus Christ, because it's only Jesus Christ working in us as our Redeemer that will protect us and give us the strength not to compromise those things that are true. So let us not do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for your Son, because, oh, we need Him. We need Him so badly. We have are tempted and have tendencies to just simply do the things that we want because we like them or the things that we, we want because that's what we've always done before and not to begin by asking the question, is this what you want, God? So Father, I pray that you uh, would turn our minds away from compromise and turn our minds towards your word. That you would help us when we face things like times of destruction in the Bible and realize that that's something that eventually we will see in an internal way and that we should not shy away from that. But be bold in telling the world that unless they repent, they will, they will be destroyed. 
And Father, may we be faithful in caring for wives and protecting them from influences being godly and uh, equipping our children to make wise choices when they seek to get married. May we think from a worldview that is marked by your word and not by the world's. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.